Thanks, team, for leading us in a time of praise. What a great song to sing on a Sunday that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. really tells the story of what's happened in each of our lives, what God has done in order to make our salvation possible. We've been using the book of Romans as kind of a a book that will prepare us for our participation at the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to invite you to turn there with me to uh, the book of Romans. And as we're turning, let me just remind you again of the way in which Paul laid out this letter to the believers in Rome. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with the topic of sin. Chapters 4 and 5 then progress to salvation. Makes sense. Sin, salvation. And then in verses 6 through 8, we're dealing with the whole idea of sanctification. So that's becoming more and more like Christ. Living a life that we've been set free from sin to live. Today we'll be focusing on a passage right in the middle of this section on sanctification. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13. Now keep your finger in Romans chapter 7 and flip with me back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning at verse 14. Do you see it there? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You didn't know any better. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written... He's quoting the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So not only is God calling his people in Old Testament times to be holy, but he's calling you and I to be holy as well. And that, my friends, is what sanctification is all about. Becoming more and more godlike in our thoughts, our feelings, and our aspirations. But how's that possible? To become more godlike in all those areas of life. Listen to these words from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, and in me. God's works in you and me. When we have knowledge of our sin, ask for his forgiveness and begin by faith, trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. When we do that, God takes up residence in our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the sanctification process begins. And you and I develop habits, exercises, or disciplines that invite or repel, depending on what our habits are, God's work of sanctification in your life and in mine. That's what it means to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in your life and in mine. A couple of weeks ago, we focused on verses 1 through 6 of Romans chapter 7. In those verses, Paul was explaining to believers, true followers of Jesus Christ, that they have died to the law. Not that the law is dead. 
but as faithful followers of Jesus, we have been set free from the condemnation of the law. Go ahead and take a sneak peek at Romans chapter 8, the first two verses. We'll eventually get to these. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was talking to someone this week who pointed to that verse as justification for being involved in a sinful activity. He said, well, we're not under condemnation. Trust me, that's not what the verse is saying. In fact, if you read on in chapter 8, you'll discover that. But verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The point is, we may have died to the law, but the law is not dead to us as New Testament believers. It still has a role to play in our lives. But the question remains, is the law a friend or a foe? That's the title of this morning's message. I titled it, The Law, Friend or Foe? Paul answers that question in the verses that we're going to focus on this morning. He asks and then responds to two questions that will help us to determine how we should view the law. What is our relationship to the law? Should we view the law as a friend or as an enemy? Those two questions we find here in Actually, let's look at them. Verse 7. I've got them highlighted in my Bible. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I combine those. That's question number one. And then drop down to verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Two great questions. Allow me to read this entire passage and then pray together. And then we'll begin by focusing on these seven verses. Have a little closer look. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. I'll begin reading at verse 5. It kind of sets the context for the passages we want, or the verses we want to Consider this morning. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 7. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What then shall we, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. 
So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy, holy, holy the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We have already heard your call this morning from the scriptures, be holy, for I am holy. God, have mercy on us, we pray. Forgive us for our sin, for things we have done, the things we have left undone, and the things we are not even aware of. Forgive us, we pray. Create in us a clean heart. Renew a desire in each one of us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Obeying all that you have commanded and then teaching others to do likewise. Thank you for the opportunity we will have to participate in the Lord's Supper. Remembering his sacrifice the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us safely home to you. Thank you for your written word, preserved down through the ages, supernaturally. A word that we are told will stand forever. May the same spirit that inspired its writing now enlighten our minds so that we can hear it with understanding and respond to its transformational power. We want to be transformed into his image, into Jesus' image, with ever-increasing glory. For it is in his name, in Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. It's a command. Or perhaps it's a plea not to attack the person who is bringing a message that the recipient does not want to hear. Before modern technology, messages were often sent back and forth using human messengers. For example, in a time of war, human messengers would be sent back and forth between enemy camps, perhaps negotiating a surrender. But if the message was determined to be unacceptable or insulting or whatever, they weren't in agreement with what the message said, the messenger may never return to camp. Thus the saying, don't shoot the messenger on those occasions had a literal meaning. And even today, when people deliver bad news, we as recipients can respond poorly. We might even hear ourselves saying, hey, don't shoot the messenger. 
I'm just the delivery boy. Come to think of about it, was that not Jesus' experience? He, he was sent by the Father as a living messenger. The Word became flesh, lived among us. John Piper would say he pitched his tent in our backyard. John chapter 1, verse 11. Then we're told that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Now they didn't shoot him, but they did crucify him. Let's admit it. It's easy for us to respond poorly to a bearer of bad news. Even though it does not, it does absolutely nothing to solve or get rid of the problem or the issue that we're facing. When the dust settles and we've taken our frustration out on the messenger, absolutely nothing's changed. Except perhaps we've been able to create a new problem. Now we have a messenger that has not really appreciated who we are. He thinks even less of us, that's for sure. It's interesting to note that of the 77 times that that phrase, the law, is found in the book of Romans, 22 times are right here. In Romans chapter 7. Paul wants to clarify our relationship to the law. He wants us to have a clear understanding of the role of the law in our lives. In these verses, the law is actually the messenger that we are not to shoot. The Apostle Paul offers two specific ways we can avoid shooting the law. Now I'm sure there, well I know that there's a whole lot more ways to kill or get rid of or undermine the law's message in our lives. Think about it. How can we undermine the laws or, or push it away Certainly limiting our exposure to it would be one way. Or refusing to listen is another. How about Romans chapter 18, chapter 1 verse 18? There we are warned of the consequences of something that is really quite natural to all of us when we're just left to ourselves. You have this natural tendency to resist the law's influence in our lives. Listen to verse 18 of chapter 1, right at the beginning of the book of Romans. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That comes as natural as anything in our lives, if we're left to ourselves. We'll just naturally suppress the truth with our unrighteousness. These are all subtle ways that we as believers can shoot the messenger or eliminate the law's influence in our lives. Yes, we are dead to the law, because of a relationship to Jesus Christ. But the law still has a message to deliver to you and to me, even as believers. 
And it may be a message that you don't want to hear. Paul is writing to persuade us. In spite of the law's message, do not, do not shoot the messenger. And this is how believers avoid shooting the messenger or shooting the law in this case. Look at the first part of verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Is the law sin? Paul asks. And then he responds as adamantly as he can. Absolutely not. In fact, the strength of Paul's denial here communicates an like it's almost, it's absurd even to suggest such a thing. So why even mention it then? Well, perhaps the Apostle Paul was anticipating what they may be thinking in light of what he said earlier in this letter to the Romans. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 2. How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? And then compare that to what we read earlier here in Romans chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Can you see what could happen here? Died to sin and died, made to die to the law. The law is sin and the sin is law. But Paul's denial is emphatic. He leaves no question mark in our minds in regard to our relationship to the law. Don't even think about it. The law is not sin. Do not make the law your enemy. Why? Because it's easy to shoot an enemy. Believers can avoid shooting the messenger, the law, by not blaming the law for your sin. And it's not that that could never happen, right? We may not have said it out loud, but we've all been involved in those occasions when we blame someone else. Or perhaps it was circumstances beyond our control. Like the dog ate my homework. Blame it on the dog or whatever, for our mistake, failure, missed appointment, the cause of an accident, the list could go on and on. I think of all the excuses that I've come up with over the years. It's embarrassing. We let ourselves off the hook by hanging it on someone else. It's an attempt to dodge personal responsibility, to somehow save face. It's not all that uncommon, is it? In fact, it seems to be hardwired, just part of our DNA. At heart, we are all artful dodgers to one degree or another. Think back to the, the very beginning. How about Adam and Eve? They're placed in paradise, the perfect environment. Can you imagine a place that God would call very good? Just do not eat from that tree the knowledge of good and evil. It was a love test. 
and they failed miserably. We could say catastrophically looking back because of the generational impact on all of creation as a result of their decision. Anyway, they ate and God showed up and they hid. Can you imagine how ridiculous that is? Trying to hide from God. But in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, God calls Adam to account. It's interesting how Adam responds. The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Blame. Both on the woman and maybe even on God. You made her. Then the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And at that point, I think God was fed up. He didn't ask the serpent anything. He just started laying out the consequences. Adam and Eve became the classic examples of playing the blame game. And God ensured both suffered their own unique consequences for their act of sinfulness. Here in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul provides an alternative by sharing from his own personal experience. You may want to circle that word I in verse 7 and verse 9. Notice verse 7, I would not have known. Same verse, I would not have known. Or sorry, the first one, I would not have come to know. And then verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. The end of the verse, sin became alive and I died. Let's say through these, this section it's getting pretty personal, pretty close to home for the Apostle Paul. And so I've identified three lessons to be learned from Paul's personal encounter with the message of the law. Look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not cover it. Don't miss that repetition there. The NASB reads, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Then a little later, I would not have known. Paul's saying, I would have remained ignorant. The word translated know is an experiential knowledge. Paul is providing us with an eyewitness testimony. He's speaking from his own personal encounter, and this is his testimony. I, I had no idea. Apart from the law, I was completely unaware. Back in 1982, apart from a the result of an MRI scan, we had no idea a tumor was growing in my head. Acoustic neuroma. Complete hearing loss on my left side over a two-year period. And I mean stone deaf by the end of that period. A blinding Knockout headache. Loss of balance. 
In fact, that's how they discovered the tumor. I went to first one hearing specialist, was sent by our, our doctor to a hearing specialist in London. And um, he decided that it was, uh, and his waiting room was full, and he gave me all of, you wait for an hour and a half to get in. First of all, you wait three months to get there. And you wait an hour and a half to get in. And he gives you all of about three minutes. And tells me that after a couple of tests and looking in my ears, said, I think maybe, do you work with power tools? Well, I was putting on vinyl aluminum siding in those days. And so, yeah, I worked with skill saws. He said, I think maybe it's that loud noise. Do you wear hearing protection? No. Uh, I left the office thinking on my drive home, wait a minute, why would that affect just my left side and not my right side? And I, at that time, I was back in school, so it was just through the summer months that I was having this hearing problem. Went to the next specialist, and they were baffled. They couldn't figure out what was going on. But then I remember one appointment, they put me in a, a uh, chair that spun around. It was like riding one of those octopus things at the carnival. And uh, boy, they did their work on that. And I came out, I didn't know which end was up. And he said, you know what? I think we need to do an MRI. And bingo, within days, days from that appointment, I was in surgery. But until that moment, this tumor that was causing all these external symptoms remained undetected. The MRI showed it up. And that's what the law does in your life and in mine. Turn over with me to James chapter 1. Beginning at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Keep that in mind, that word. We'll come back to that. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become forgetful, a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what, what he does. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it informs us that same word, the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in an interpretive translation, they say it's sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and even the intentions of our hearts. This law that Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 7 exposes our sinful nature. The law exposes our sinful natures. Proverbs chapter 51, verse 5. King David has been confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his sin with Bathsheba. That whole incident. And uh, this is his confession. And he includes this in the confession. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 12, it reads, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. 
for everyone sinned. Regardless of the external expressions, you and I, in fact, all of us, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, fall short of the standard of God, that standard of perfection that he requires for a relationship with him. And it's because of this sin nature has affected, infected every area of our lives. We refer to this condition as, or we would write the diagnosis as, the depravity of man. That doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be. But it, what it does mean is we have this sin nature that lives in the controlling center of our lives and it has infected or polluted every part of us totally. So we may be able to fool ourselves and others some of the time. You know, folks, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. But the law exposes us for who we really are. Paul's names a specific law that caught his attention earlier in his life. Look at the end of verse 7. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. So Paul identified the tenth of the Ten Commandments. They're listed in Exodus chapter 20 and repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. What is most interesting, and you may want to make a note of this, that, that the commandment that he chooses, the last one in the list of ten, is the only commandment that deals with an internal attitude, covetousness. It's a condition of the heart. Notice, continuing reading, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity, and that's setting up a base camp, like if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you'd first arrive at a base camp. It takes you 6 to 12 days to get to that. And any of us could do it if we're in half-decent health. It's not a, a, it's a safe trek. Only three to five people a year die. Or at most, like that's the debate. Some people have said it's 12 to 15. But regardless, 30,000 people make that trek a year. So it's relatively safe as long as you stay on the path. If you venture off, that's where people can get killed. But that leads to a base camp and then you ascend up Mount Everest and that's a whole different story. But sin has set up a base camp through the commandment. Produced in me coveting of every kind. Notice that. Every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. We may want to refer to this as the Apostle Paul's great awakening. You see what's happening here? Not only did the law expose this latent or concealed or covert sin nature but Paul became aware for the first time in his life of the power of sin in, a, in his life in, and in our lives listen to his confession to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We'd all say amen. And I am the worst of them all. 
See how the law awakened Paul? Paul's exposure to the law left him with an acute awareness of his own sinfulness. The law exposes our sinful nature and the law exposes our sinful appetites. They just become stronger. Say, don't touch the white paint. It's just almost irresistible. Look at verses 10 and 11. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity, setting up its base camp through the commandment, deceived me, underline that, and through it, killed me. The law exposes our sinful delusions. We're, we're delusional, left to ourselves. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, puts it to us straight. Listen, beloved, the heart is, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It's a lot of things. It's the most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Great question. Listen to John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. And remember, Jesus is God dressed in human flesh. This is early at the beginning of his public ministry. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature. For he knew what was in each person's heart. We have deceitful hearts, and I can't see yours, and thank God you can't see mine. My credibility would be at an all-time low this morning, if that were the case. But I'm fighting it, and I know you are too. But God sees our hearts. He knows our intention. We cannot hide. Beloved, the law can do the same thing in our lives. Your life and in mine, as it did in Paul's. It can expose. It can expose our sinful natures. It can expose our sinful appetites. It can expose our sinful delusions. We're not as good as we think we are. Or as we pretend to be. or even as we wish we were. I'm sorry. But we're just not. Please don't shoot the messenger. I'm just a message boy. I grew up in a God-fearing home. And prior to trusting Jesus Christ alone as my personal Savior, I can remember thinking that, boy, I sure hope I've done enough good things in life that if I were to die, the good things would outweigh the bad things and somehow God would let me into his heaven. But the truth is, none of us will ever be good enough. The law exposes the truth about you and about me. Like the prophet Nathan exposed the truth that David, King David had thought was so well hidden. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 reads, Wounds from a sincere friend 
are better than many kisses from an enemy. True friends will tell us the truth even when they know it's going to hurt and we don't want to hear it. Enemies will blow smoke in your face. They will tell us what they think we want to hear. That's no friend. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul is speaking of our teachings in the church. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Truth-telling. Speaking the truth, growing up. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 reads, where there is no vision. And a few years back, churches bought into the corporate world and said, oh, you have to have a great vision in order to promote church growth. That's not even what this verse is talking about. I just want to clarify that. It's talking, actually, you can write in here, where there is no revelation from God, we've got it, the people are unrestrained. They just do whatever they want. Back to the book of Judges, where everyone done, did what was right in their own eyes. Verse continues, but happy is he who keeps the law. Here's the truth about the law. Look at verse 12. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Beloved, embrace this book, the law, as your friend. Take every opportunity to be exposed to it. Listen to it. Read it. Ponder it. Treasure it. And by all means, obey it. Don't shoot the messenger. The law is telling us the truth. It's your sin. You can try to deny it, excuse it, blame others, or extenuating circumstances for it. But the law is going to tell us the truth because the law is sincere, true, committed friend. It's not always going to tell us what we want to hear, but it will lead you to Christ and make you more like him in your thoughts, feelings, behavior, and aspirations. Avoid shooting the messenger by not blaming the law for your sin. And secondly, by not accusing the law of being the cause for your death. Look at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause for, of death for me? May it never be. Again, strong denial. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Spiritual death initially, but physical death eventually. Let me read, turn with me to, Gal actually let me read Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 from the New Living Translation. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child, the Christ who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses 
who was the mediator between God and the people. Then verse 21, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. Same phrase. May genomai. Strong prohibition, strong denial. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. And listen to this phrase. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. The first application was to embrace the law as your friend. It's going to tell you the truth about yourself. And this one is receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Only by believing in Jesus Christ. You know, participating in the Lord's Supper is an expression of our belief in Jesus Christ. That we have come to that point in our lives where we have admitted repented and ask God for forgiveness and believe in Jesus. You believe who he was? You believe who he claimed to be? You believe what the scriptures say he did? And you believe that he will do what he promised he will do? Not just for your salvation, but for your sanctification as well. That is where God's promise of freedom is found. So, Paul's advice, don't shoot the messenger. This is another one of those put off, put on. Take it off, put it on. Don't blame the law for your sin. Embrace the law as your friend. Don't accuse the law of causing your death. Receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ.